Welcome to Hymn Talk, a discussion of hymns, music, and singing in the life of the church. I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is my brother Alex. Alex, how are we doing? Doing well. Just just so happy to be here on the uh, on the set of Hymn Talk, <laughs> and uh, talking about hymns. You know, thinking about hymns. Just it's just a privilege. And by the set of Hymn Talk, you mean your study. Oh yeah, we're we're up here in the study, and we're talking about some hymns, and we're looking at some hymnals, and we're considering some verses, and it's great. I from, love it. from humble beginnings, we're, we're going places, aren't that's we? That's right, that's right. Well, Alex, many pastors and song leaders find themselves in churches in which they're, they're trying to improve a singing culture. Maybe they're new mm-hmm. in the role. Uh, maybe they've just been called to a new ministry or something like that. How would you seek to establish a culture of healthy congregational singing in a church? Good question. I think in, in many ways that would depend on the particular context that you're in, and it, I definitely don't want to set myself up as some kind of expert. I've not pastored many churches, just one. Uh, our context was a new church plant, and so I can certainly speak to that, I think. Um, we, you know, we started with a small group, and the group grew little by little, and now we're, now we're, we're larger. But um, I assumed coming into a church plant in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that if there were lost people that were converted that came into the church, the idea of singing in a group of people mm-hmm. um, was going to be awkward. Mm. And I assumed if people were coming from church backgrounds, the odds are they were in church settings in which one or two things was, was present. Either uh, congregational singing wasn't really emphasized, and so... Maybe those who were just especially gifted to sing participated, or there was a lot of special music or something like that, and just there wasn't a huge emphasis on congregational singing. Or they were in perhaps a a more contemporary church in which there's a huge emphasis on the performance-oriented aspect of it. Maybe there's a band on stage and the music's really loud and the lights are turned low, and you can't even hear yourself uh, think, let alone sing. And so I assume congregational singing wasn't a very large part of the experience of those coming in. And of course, that's not accurate for everybody, but for a lot of folks, it, it was. And so uh, what we decided to do at Emmanuel, and you were a big part of this, we just decided to strip everything down. Um, you know, when there were 20 people in the room, we weren't going to have eight people on stage playing music, right? Uh, we decided to strip everything back just to one instrument, either the piano or the guitar, and focus on congregational singing. Uh, we sung a lot of verses of songs a cappella. Um, the musical arrangements were very unadorned. They weren't extravagant at all. They're very simple, right up the middle, predictable. I picked songs that I knew were well known, hmm. and um, and tried to to practice with the congregation in this and to sing sing well known songs, simple arrangements, um, definitely not ornate musically, and just tried to emphasize the congregational singing aspect. And so. That was a big part of what we did. Uh, that had uh, uh, tremendous results. I think the early returns are positive. And I think for most people, there was this sense of, wow, I didn't realize how glorious the sound of a congregation of people singing is. I sort of forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Um, either I've never experienced it or haven't seen it done in a church for a long time. And so the reaction we got from most folks was, oh, my goodness, this is glorious. This is wonderful. Now, Alex, you're talking about a lot of things that we just did and people observed and they were either one to that or, or, or not. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever have times of specific teaching on singing or, or, oh, yeah. or instruction or exhortation? 
Yeah. Uh, and we had teach you on all kinds of things, but one of the things, again, because I assumed this was this was not something everyone was expecting coming in, that this was going to be an emphasis. And so I uh, did teaching in the new members class, did teaching in classes, like equip classes, did teaching in sermons as well. Finding either texts or pockets within sermons to profile sort of a positive vision for congregational singing and um, emphasizing the worship and the glory and the honor and praise that is given to God, the ways in which we are personally edified and hearing one another sing and singing ourselves <clears throat> and just trying to hold before the congregation this, this, this very positive vision the Bible holds forth for, for the glories of congregational singing. And so, yes, there was plenty of preaching and teaching on the subject, and at times very, very direct appeals. Brothers and sisters, this is an area where I want us to do better. I want us to sing louder. Mm-hmm. I want us to have more participation. Mm-hmm. And um, I, think, I think generally that was well-received. Mm-hmm. Alex, can you speak to, I mean, we, we're not experts, but can you speak to, you know, you're that new pastor in a church of 100, 150 people, and you're there day one. Your your mainly main responsibility is that of a preacher and, and shepherding people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just notice this this church sings poorly. Mm-hmm. That whether it's you know maybe half the songs are special. They they just don't have any sort of strong ethic when it comes to congregational singing. What would you encourage that man to do in his early days as a minister there? I can't speak from experience. I can only say what I would think to do if I were in that situation. And. Um, does this church, in this hypothetical scenario, have a, like a worship leader, a music director mm-hmm. or something? And he works for you. Okay, so he's a staff member of the church, and I'm responsible for supervising him or her. Yeah, he, okay. he, he reports to you. Yeah, well, I preach the Word of God. In, in anything I would want to see change in a congregation, I would, I would trust and expect the Word of God is sufficient to do the work of God. And if the Word of God teaches and, and, and commends congregational singing... I can teach and preach on that and pray that God's Spirit will bless that. So that is, that's weapon number one. That's my smoothest stone, if you will. Mm. And, um, but then I'm going to work practically with that song leader and try to get that person on the same page with me in terms of the vision of congregational singing in the life of the church. I'm going to go through books with that person, uh, books like Sing by the Gettys or Worship Matters by Bob Coughlin. What's the... Worship by the Book. Worship by the Book, certainly, by Carson and, and his team. Christ-centered like, Worship. Christ-centered Worship by Chapel, yeah. So going through good books like that to try to get on the same page with that song leader, so I have an ally in, in that individual. And then I would try to, if, if they have a really wide repertoire of songs, I might try to, to, to scale it back to maybe their best 20 or so and just sing those songs for a few months, uh, again, to try to get the congregation more engaged in the singing. Um, I would try to create other opportunities outside the Sunday morning worship service where singing can be done. So if they have a Wednesday night service, we might do more singing. Uh, Sunday evening service, if there are small groups in the church, find pockets where people are gathering together and they're just singing together. Encourage singing a cappella. That sort of forces you out of your comfort zone and forces you to sing. Um, And so, yeah, this would be some of the the broad things I would do. I wouldn't have expectations that it's going to change overnight. It's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. On that question of, of the song leader, uh, worship leader, whatever you want to call it, uh, you and I work very closely. But can you speak to, um, as an observer, and you obviously have, you have worship leading experience, but, but as an observer, somebody who's in the pews, 
What are things song leaders should be thinking about when it comes to leading that that encourage healthy, robust congregational singing? And what are some things maybe they tend not to think of that would discourage healthy singing? You're talking about in the in, in the things that the worship leader does. Yes, I'm talking from the stage or yeah, front Sunday morning. Uh, what are the things that can help that young man? Uh, or older men <laughs> sure. lead worship, lead God's people. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm interested to turn the question on you. Maybe you give me your input here in a second. Uh, this is just a smattering of thoughts. I think um, one one mistake song leaders can make is projecting their current emotional mood onto the congregation. Hmm. So sometimes the song leader maybe has had a couple of hours that morning before the service. Hmm to prepare his heart, he's practiced the songs, he's reflected on the lyrics, and he comes in with his heart full, and he sees a lot of people who barely got there that morning and, and haven't had the advantage of a couple hours of prep like he has. And so I wouldn't, I, I, I think more of the song leader's role in terms of, 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 of pulling worship out of the people and leading the people to God and hmm. trying to stir their hearts to, to engage, but I wouldn't assume they're there. Um, I would say mechanically, um, one thing you have done here that I really appreciate, I'm not sure where you learned to do this, but um, you might start a song right up front on the mic, you know, so your voice is prominent coming through the speakers, and as the congregation takes off, and that could sometimes take all of about six seconds, sometimes it takes a whole verse if it's an unfamiliar song, but as I think you're reading the congregation and you think, okay, I can, I can kind of let go of the bike now and let the kid go yes. off, you know? Yeah, and so your, your voice becomes kind of like training wheels mm-hmm. or that hand on the, on the wheel. And um, I think that's a great practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, we don't want to hear one voice prominent over everybody else's. We want that voice to assist us as long as we need it. And once we're into it, we don't need it. Yes. And so you backing off the mic, I love that. I think yeah. that's great. And it's a lot of times I notice when that happens, our congregation audibly uh, sounds louder when yeah. when your voice is not as prominent, and so it's it, there are several things like that that are practical things that I just find uh, you need to find what your people respond to as well. So there there are some there's some whether they're idiosyncrasies or, or practical things a, a worship leader can do that might work in one context well to stir people mm-hmm. and not well in another. You know, I, I might yell out the next line we're about to sing to the congregation. If that didn't work to stir our congregation, I wouldn't do it. Yes. You know, I don't just do that because I heard Matt Redmond do that sure. or saw another worship leader do that, and that's what worship leaders do. No, mm. no, I'm doing that because I'm leading God's people in singing. Yeah. And I'm trying to, like you said, direct their hearts towards God uh, and, and help them sing out as well as they can. And Zach, just for the benefit of our listeners, do you encourage the congregation to lift up a shout of praise at the end of the song or <laughs> applaud or give Jesus a hand or what is your normal I think, practice? I think clarity is king and if I just yelled out, lift out a shout of praise, I'd be scared of what would happen. Mm. So I, I just don't do that. I think in our church you would get 150 just sort of blank stares. Like, <laughs> like, like you want me to do what? Yeah. <laughs> they'd just be confused. I think they'd be uh, you know, an, Another tool in your belt is and and. I don't think this is ever received as a subtle rebuke, but if, if a verse is, if we sing the first verse of a song, and it's for some reason low energy, and the church isn't very uh, entering in as much as I'd like to see them, I might say, let's sing that verse again. Mm. And we repeat the verse, 
and it's very clear when we're supposed to start uh, well, singing again. I could just say, as someone in the congregation, when you do that, I assume one of two things, or both things are happening at the same time. Zach just thought that verse was so good, and we really needed to meditate on it a second time. Or he's thinking, all right, you didn't really sing it out that time. I'm giving you a second chance. Regardless of what your motive is, it is always true that when you ask us to sing a verse a second time, it's always louder the second time around. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's a positive thing. And if I could just take privilege here, you know, I, I'm in a convenient situation. You know, Alex is the main preaching pastor here. He's not the only pastor here. But, you know, we, we communicate very well to each other. I would just encourage song leaders. As far as feedback in these sort of areas pastors might be reluctant to give it quickly. So I would just encourage you, be as humble as you can be in seeking input from your pastors. Uh, you know, guys, am I being helpful to the mm. people here? You know, I, I, I'm doing these things. I, I wouldn't do, be doing them if I didn't think they were going well. No. But please give me some guidance here. It's, it's so imperative that song leaders and pastors be on the same page when, they're, when it comes to leading God's people in song. Back to uh, specific instruction we might give uh, members. I know you make a big deal about congregational singing and the importance of it in our new members meetings. Can you mm-hmm. talk to me about some of the things you do there? Well, yeah, in our new members classes, there's there's a lot of things that need to be covered and oftentimes in short compass. And um, a lot of times I, I recognize some things about our church might be peculiar to, to others just based on their church background or lack thereof. So, so there's certain things about our church where you think, okay, well, why, why is this so important to you? Why do you do this? And I might spend more time covering those things. One of the things that sadly I think is a distinctive of our church is the congregational singing. And I say sadly because it, it shouldn't be a distinctive. Uh, all of Christ churches should make that a priority, and the, the, the hearty engagement of God's people in congregational singing should be a feature of corporate worship everywhere it happens. But but anyway, oftentimes people will comment on, oh wow, the you know the singing is so is so loud here, it's so great, it's so stirring, and so uh, in that new members class, I'm encouraging members to make that a priority if they're to join the church. One of the things we're expecting of new members is hearty engagement in every element and aspect of of corporate worship. So so if if a, a man is up there leading us in prayer, I expect, all right, I'm assuming the congregation is entering into this prayer. Mm. And I know they're entering into this prayer, hopefully, audibly, by the, 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 the corporate amen at the end of the prayer. Mm. If the word of God is being preached or a class is being taught, people are... Um, leaning in. They're leaning in. They're listening. They're engaging. Their minds in that time in the service, uh, in communion, they're participating. All those who are followers of Christ, been baptized according to his command, are engaging in that time. Similarly with singing, we just say to our incoming members, you know, our expectation is... Uh, you're going to participate. It's not a spectator sport. It's it's a full contact sort of affair. And so, um, so in that new members class, I'm just trying to encourage members, play your part, find your role in the life of this church and in the context of our worship services. And one of those is is lifting up your voice and praise to God. Do we say anything in our covenant or our documents about singing? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, our covenant, if I'm not mistaken will emphasize engagement in the corporate meetings of the church, but I don't think singing is... Like, there's no line that says, and we will, you know, sing all the songs all the time. We don't say that. But there is a not forsaking the meetings, participating in the meetings. One of the things, and I'd be delighted for you to speak to this, I remember when we were preparing our Constitution. There's a section in our church Constitution about the privileges and requirements of church members. 
and I remember when we were writing that constitution about three years ago now, the, the, one of the lines I had written as sort of a first draft sort of thing was attendance at the, the corporate gatherings of the church. That's how I read, attendance at those meetings. And I remember you said to me, um, yeah, of course, attendance, but don't we want to say more than that? Don't we want to say a, attendance at and participation in mm-hmm. the corporate gatherings of the church? I, I'd be happy for you to sort of share what was in your mind when, <clears throat> when you made that suggestion. Yeah, well, well, well Christian people who the New Testament teaches are, are, are to be a, are a part of churches, uh, they're not called just to observe. They're not called to be consumers. They're called to participate. Mm-hmm. As you said, I mean, each element of our, wor- our worship is uh, it's participatory. Singing is intrinsically participatory. Mm-hmm. Preaching, yeah, you can participate as a listener, but singing, you have to. And if God's people corporately are commanded to sing, that that implies every member. So yeah, I think if we're if we're going to take gathering seriously, uh, in what way is gathering meaningful if you're not participating in it? Uh, and what are the ways just the average Christian can do that? One of the main ways they can do that is through singing God's word and His praises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Alice, we can transition into the hymn of the week, but before we do, you have any other thoughts? No, I, I would just encourage uh, pastors and, and peers of mine, uh, this is a worthy goal. It can be done over time, but to encourage your congregation to engage in singing, it's powerful. It stirs my heart every time we worship. It's a compelling witness to outsiders who come in. Preach for it. Teach for it. Do the, the work behind the scenes with your musicians and song leaders. It is so worthwhile and can really, in my experience, transform a worship service if hearty congregational singing is, is, is featured. Amen. Well, Alex, I'm excited about this week's hymn. Uh, it's one of those hymns uh, which made me want to start this podcast in the first place because if everybody could sing this hymn, I, man, I would consider this just a, a grand accomplishment. And that hymn is Arise My Soul, Arise. Arise My Soul by Charles Wesley. This hymn was published in 1742. And for those of you who don't know Charles Wesley or his brother John, these were two men that were just pillars in the early evangelical movement in the 1700s. And they were both Oxford men, and they were known in their early years at at Oxford for uh, being members of what they called the Holy Club. And these were men that were deeply committed to holiness and piety, yet they were not converted. They had not uh, uh, experienced any sort of change of heart. Uh, in their lives yet. So it wasn't actually until years after university that they were converted. And for Charles, he, it was not until he was 30 years old. And Alice, do you know how old John was when he was converted? I don't know exactly how old. Around the same age, they were converted in close proximity to one another. I think that there's some question as to when John was actually converted. I think he dates his conversion to 1738, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Charles was, uh, he was a preacher, but he, he was mostly remembered today as a hymn writer. And in his life, Charles was just absolutely prolific. He wrote in the ballpark of 6,000 hymns. So evangelicalism, there there are many tenets to to what makes an evangelical an evangelical. Well, one of the things that really just powered the evangelical movement was the hymns that were being written during that time. And uh, probably the greatest hymn writer of the 1700s was Charles Wesley. You probably know many of his hymns. He's written several Christmas songs, uh, but some of his popular hymns include O Four Thousand Tongues, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, And Can It Be, Rejoice the Lord is King, Jesus Lover of My Soul. 
uh, so many treasures to the church. Well, today we're going to be discussing what I assume to be mine and Alex's favorite Charles Wesley hymn, and that is Arise My Soul, Arise. Now, Arise My Soul, Arise, it's essentially uh, mostly about Christ's intercessory work. So we know Jesus Christ. He was incarnate. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He rose again. Well, he didn't just do all those things. He, he uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is currently. And he ever lives above to intercede on our behalf. Hmm. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding hmm. for us? Amen. Alex, talk to us about Arise My Soul. What do you like about this hymn? Oh, well, it's, it, I, I think it probably is my favorite Charles Wesley song, along with And Can It Be. Uh, what I appreciate most about the song is uh, I think it represents very well the posture uh, we're to take in worship, or at least at, at, at certain places in the worship service. So in our service in particular, there's always a prayer of confession at some point, usually in the early half or so of the service. And then we have a, 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 a verse of scripture that's read out as an assurance of pardon. And to sing a song like Arise, My Soul, Arise, after that assurance of pardon has been read out, and we're meditating on the gospel and God's forgiveness of our sins, and then to sing those opening lines, now, you know, Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice and my behalf appears. It, it's sort of a, a, a sermon to sell for the congregation speaking to itself. Uh, we don't need to despair like those who are without hope and without forgiveness. The Lord Jesus has covered uh, our sins in his blood. He's cleansed us from every stain of sin. So we should lift up our souls to God and praise for that. And we need not cower in fear in his presence, but um, boldly approach his throne through what Christ has done. That's the theme of the song. So it fits really well, uh, accompanied with an assurance of pardon. But it really can fit anywhere in the service. It is, it is, I know we've sung it as a song of response, especially if the gospel in particular has been emphasized in the sermon and um, Christ's work on our behalf. So I, I think it's a fantastic song. It's so well suited to corporate worship. Alex, the song is, it, it's a call to arousal of soul. It, it's, it's a song that's calling um, to, to stir our affections, our mm -hmm. hearts towards the Lord. I view the song as sort of assuming maybe a particular type of disposition, and, and that might be a, a believer who's prone to doubt, a believer that's prone to uh, maybe forget the promises of the gospel, maybe a believer who's introspective, and is crippled by their own sins mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. afflicted by their their own iniquities, things like that. Can you speak to the 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 importance of a hymn like this in the life of the church that is calling Christians to uh, greater assurance in the things that Christ pledges to them? Well, yeah, I think songs like this, hymns like this, are especially important if if you are emphasizing in your worship service a very realistic view of sin. And, and um, the need for confession and repentance and all of that. So, so if, you are, if you're acknowledging up front as, a, as a, a gathering of Christians, we're sinners in need of the grace of God. We're painfully aware of our own failures, our own shortcomings, our own sins, which I don't think is necessarily the experience of just those who are prone to doubt, but, but of all Christians at some point or another, we're just crippled by our sins in so many ways. And we're aware of them so painfully and they make us ashamed and I don't want to, our people to think that's, 
that's a posture that should be alien to a worship service. Mm. No, any you know we do we normally start with a uh, song of praise, prayer of praise, contemplation of God. That is should always have the effect of um, impressing us with our own finitude and our mm. own failure and our own sinfulness and mm. our own need. In our services, that moves to a prayer of confession. There's a lot of honesty about sin, and it can yeah. feel very heavy. You can feel like you had your head held under the water mm. for the first bit of that service. Mm. And then when that assurance of pardon comes and a song like this comes, it's with sweet gospel comfort. It's like a balm to your soul. And so I, I think for folks who are in that posture of hating sin, hating that they are sinners, yeah. and needing to trust Christ for grace and for pardon, what a beautiful song to sing. Yeah. The second verse says, He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race. And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Mm-hmm. Now, some people might know that Charles Wesley, the original words of this song were, His blood atoned for all our race. His blood atoned for all our race. And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Uh, Reformed people will normally have that line edited to uh, atone for every race. Can you talk about the difference there and why that's an important distinction? I wouldn't say I know exactly what was in Charles' mind. I'd have to think more about it. But I think actually both lines can be sung and could be true. There's a sense in which we all come from the race of men, the race of Adam. And so if you wanted to sing, well, his blood atoned for for all our race, meaning um, there's a sense in which God... Uh, 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 saves mankind and sin. I, I don't think that's necessarily so terrible a notion to sing that. But I, I'm, I'm guessing the reason for the change among Reformed folks is not to confuse the idea of definite atonement and uh, the effect of Christ's atonement. So we should not think in terms of Christ dying for all men everywhere um, in the sense that he accomplishes salvation for each one. Certainly this song is emphasizing the accomplishment of salvation. So to say his blood atoned for every race, as opposed to all our race, is emphasizing that Christ will redeem men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, every, every race, every ethnicity in that sense, and will secure redemption for sinners from every, every ethnic group. It's kind of the idea there. But I, it wouldn't bother me tremendously to sing, sing all our race. I think there's a sense in which that's true as well. Alex, what are your favorite lines in this song? Probably... The, the, the uh, way we sing it, I think it's the third verse. Um, it's so artistically written and so, uh, um, so edifying, so powerful in his sentiment. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. That is so powerful. I mean, that will preach. Mm, mm-hmm. This this idea that Jesus is holding forth his wounds before his Father, uh, that the hands he lifts to his Father in prayer. We're told in 1 Timothy 2, I desire in every place that the men lift, uh, 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 pray to God, lifting holy hands in mm, prayer. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that Jesus adopts a similar posture in his prayers to the Father, and there the wounds themselves are visible and are themselves an assurance of the effectiveness of Jesus' prayers. What a powerful picture. And then to actually uh, envision Jesus himself praying to the Father, forgive him, oh, forgive these wounds cry. Oh, what a, what a glorious picture. I love it. It melts my heart to sing that line. Yeah, I think this hymn, like many, many texts of Scripture, 
I just sense I need this. Mm. I, I need this as a Christian person, uh, just to know that uh, uh, Christ's wounds that they're, they're they themselves are interceding on my behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, even si- it's amazing just the longer you're a Christian, how simple truths are the things that stick with you, and they're the things you just return to again and again. I think of First Timothy one fifteen that says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. Like I live there every day, mm. and I nev- we never graduate beyond truths like yeah. that. I think my, probably my favorite hymn is or favorite line in the hymn is the from the last stanza. Uh, Wesley writes, "With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry." That's yeah. a line we often repeat as a congregation uh, that we can approach the throne boldly. Uh, yeah. on the merits of Christ. I'll say I'm not aware, just off the top of my head, of a song that better captures the intercessory work of Christ. There's a, a more modern song, Before the Throne. Mm-hmm. That's another one emphasizing Christ's intercession, which is another <coughs> excellent song. Um, but, but particularly on that theme of Christ's intercession for his people, and particularly the way in which his atonement factors into that intercession, um, hard to find a better song than this. And... Um, it's beautiful. One technical note, I would just encourage you, look up the original tune to this song if you're familiarizing yourself. There's a popular newer tune written, um, I think, by Indelible Grace or Sovereign Grace. I am not a fan of the tune. Uh, and personally, I'm just not a fan of, of, of rewriting tunes that no, need to be written. I think the, the original tune of this song is just fantastic. When, when you say original tune, you're talking about the Lennox tune, the um, Arise My Soul, yes. Arise. That's yeah. a beautiful tune. If you want to find a good recording of that, you can find Bob Coughlin uh, doing it at Together for the Gospel. I think from the first Together for the Gospel recording, uh, it's just glorious. Do you have any other thoughts about this hymn? Oh, uh, lots of them, but I, I think I've shared enough for this episode. And um, no, I, I just commend it to congregations for their singing. Well, friends, with that, we thank you for your time. Alex, thank you for your time. Thanks, man. Bye.